This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am super excited for today because back by popular demand, we have John Stovell. He's the president and CEO of Reliance Properties Limited, one of the larger developers in the city. They do phenomenal work. And John, of course, super active voice in the city. He's been on the show before. Tons of great feedback. And we have him back. We have John back. He is a very important voice. Yes. I, I think a very important voice in the city of Vancouver and definitely one that stands out as a guy who tell you what he thinks right? and is not afraid of the haters on Twitter and very thoughtful guy. Last time we had him on was back before John Horgan became the premier. That's how long ago it was. So it's so great to have him back on. So much has changed and it's great to revisit a number of topics, politics, investment opportunities, strategies. We run the gamut. It's a long one. This is a great conversation with John Stovell. You know, there's so many things that are tough to address and talk about in municipal politics and in conversations around housing and affordability. And I'm so happy that a guy like John Stovell is not afraid to say what he feels, right? In a, in a world right now where sometimes, like it feels like a lot of people just don't say anything. Wow. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's sensitive, these topics. And I love that guys like John exist. And he says some really powerful things on the program today. His Twitter is phenomenal to watch. And uh, he's just a great guy to have around. Great guy to have in the city of Vancouver, that's for sure. So yes. stay tuned for that. Before we get to that, Adam, we should mention the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Spinning gold about the commercial real estate world, that's for sure. Yes. Very, very, out of the gates, very strong. Corey Wright's podcast, the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. But we asked John Stovell, he's the second guy, where we steal one of Corey Wright's six-pack questions. Yeah. What is your favorite group, music group, band? <laughs> Band, band or song. I can't believe I've done that twice now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's so great. I, I love that question. And what do you think John uh, John's jamming to while he drives around the city? You'll have to wait to find out. But Matt, before we get to our conversation with John Stovell, let's talk about this heat wave. Living that Kokomo life. Living that Kokomo life. I'm headed to the beach tomorrow morning. Congratulations. Uh, you're you're putting in a 12-hour day. I've got a long day tomorrow. I, I, I'd like to think it's business cycles. But, it, you know, this is, since we've been talking about this for the last week or so, living that Kokomo life. Right. Hashtag Kokomo life. Yeah. 
it's got me thinking, and I think you and I have talked about this quite a bit, we're aspiring to a Kokomo life, right? That's, I think, what this podcast, in, in some ways, this podcast... There's and, a line. ...and investing in real estate in general is aspirational in the sense that you're... you're that's, that's the goal. You know, I think I've, personally speaking, I don't think I've ever necessarily... It's taken years to kind of isolate the carrot. Where, where this is where this all goes but yeah i think there is a there's a through line between what we talk about on this show and kokomo life well and really though cuz the goal with with real estate investing is essentially to have enough cash flow passive income passive income where you don't have to put in 12 hour days on saturday right right, right. and whether that you can kokomo live that life kokomo life the kokomo life can be whatever you want yeah it's it could be it it's, can be whatever you want but here's the one thing that we're going to do is we're going to actually start charting how people have gotten to kokomo life and i think the big thing is zero to kokomo zero to kokomo and and this is this is a new segment on the show and right. it's not necessarily look we've had people on we've had many people i think that have whether they they've stopped working or not have achieved they're already at kokomo choosing whether you want to work they're at kokomo yeah. what i think we need to do in this segment is we're going to chart the struggle people right. that are are either in the early stages of their their drive towards kokomo right mid to late stages of kokomo yeah. Zero to Kokomo. Zero to Kokomo. Yeah. And and the best thing is we're definitely going to have, we've had a lot of investors on over time that are kind of talking about how they got to passive income, how they got to financial freedom. And I think that's going to be a recurring segment on the program. So look forward to that. And if you want to talk about your investment experience, your zero to Kokomo, definitely send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We know a lot of people in this business who, uh, and not in this business, I mean, right. in and around this business, sure. who are in some point of their journey to Kokomo. Yeah. But we need more people. And we want to talk to a lot of people. We want to have people on the show that are talking about their hangups, their failures, their successes so far. So get in touch, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Zero to Kokomo, here we come. Absolutely. And also, Matt, we are sponsored this week by Oakland Realty. That's right. Oakland Realty is our brokerage, the best brokerage in Vancouver, hands down. Great culture, great resources, great people, just a great place to be. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody looking to make a change, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. That is oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. You'll talk to Michael Morgan and the gang and get a huge incentive. Absolutely. And Matt, without further ado, why don't we cut to this conversation because it's a long one with one of the most outspoken guests, uh, one of my favorite conversations I, of the year, I think. I, I think both of us often reference uh, the first time he was on the show. Yeah. It's, it was a memorable conversation. For sure. President and CEO of Reliance Properties Limited, John Stovell. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with John Stovell, President and CEO of Reliance Properties Limited. How you doing, John? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we should say past guest fan favorite, John. Uh, you were on a couple years back, but thanks so much for taking the time again to come back on the show. Uh, you're welcome. We, you know, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast over the years, so always happy to to participate. Excellent, excellent. So, John, for some of our listeners that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm the president of Reliance Properties, where I could kind of regional uh, developer, you know, Vancouver and South Vancouver Island, but I would call us a niche developer. We do a lot of infill development and historical heritage redevelopment. When I mean infill, I don't mean, you know, a lane house. I mean, building in a mature built out environment and finding ways to insert, you know, intensified real estate within, you know, the mature urban environment all the way from renovating a heritage building to, to, you know, finishing off the third tallest tower in the city right now, one broad place. So we're kind of a niche and design forward developer, family owned, you know, been active in Vancouver for at least about 60 years, but on the development side, we'll vote for about the last 20, 20 years or so. And John, we always like to ask this question, and I think we asked some version of this last time you were on, but it's probably worth asking again. Why real estate? What excites you about real estate? Well, I mean, you know, there's multiple channels to that 
it's one of these assets that gives you both an income stream and appreciation over time, you know, not unlike a dividend paying stock. It's a high risk, high return business in, in certain instances, like, you know, ground up development. So the, the financial returns are good. But on the other side of things, it requires a very, very deep understanding of specific industry expertise execution expertise it's not a very liquid asset you know if you own a thousand shares of google you can basically sell one share and go and buy you know some groceries but if you own a building you have to sell the whole building or the whole asset so it's illiquid on the most kind of satisfaction and emotional side of things i mean it's great to be able to drive around and this is one of my favorite things just drive around or walk around and actually look at real estate that you originated that was just a twinkle in your eye at one point and now it's taking up significant role in the urban environment and providing housing or offices or you know stores or whatever it is that people need that that's really satisfying and it's sort of a secret pleasure you know you can just kind of walk by a building or walk into a building and know that you completely originated built the whole thing the people there may not have a clue who you are i kind of like that (laughs) that's great yeah so maybe thinking about kind of covid and and the last year and a half just in terms of the well the residential but maybe commercial real estate market as well We've, of course, we're kind of slowing down a little bit from a major run in the residential market. Has the last year in real estate or last year and a half surprised you? I mean, it's been nothing but surprises. I mean, you know, the first surprise was, oh, COVID. Okay, what the hell does that mean? Are we going to be able to collect any rent from anybody? Is everybody going to go broke? Is the economy going to collapse? You know, that was the initial surprise. And then since then, there's just been a whole series of, I would call that a negative surprise of incremental positive surprises of like, you know, there's an, a ban on evictions and rent increases, but hey, everybody's paying their rent. Offices are empty. Office tenants are paying their rent and renewing their rents. Retailers are and restaurants are are receiving a level of support from the government that's going to allow them to get through. And we all had to bear some of the cost of that. That was the first two or three positive surprises that were coming in COVID. And then and then this big run on housing demand, which started in the exurban suburban space and has been gradually backing up into, you know, single family in cities and then townhouses and apartments in cities and existing inventory. And now it's notwithstanding that it's sort of into a little bit more of a settled pace now, it, it's facilitating pre-sale launches again in first in the suburbs, Burnaby, Richmond. And now, you know, we've got two presentation centers open in the last, you know, two weeks in Vancouver proper and and getting great interest. So that's a surprise too. Another great surprise is that we didn't have to shut down construction. We were sure we were going to have to shut down construction. That would have been devastating for our industry. And the supply chain is another one of the negative surprises. It's just the supply chain issues and the run-up in construction costs is problematic. So I guess, you know, in summary, COVID has been a lot less negative than we were all thinking. Has had some real hidden surprises of a positive nature, you know, but construction and supply chain are significant challenges. And they're still getting worse, actually, as we're kind of coming out of COVID. That, that's kind of a trailing effect. How does that, I guess, thinking about end users in that, configuration like can we just spell out how does challenges in terms of supply changes and costs impact end users when it comes to real estate in vancouver well i mean increases costs you know i mean a lot of people believe that costs are decoupled from prices that people that prices are set by just the competitive marketplace between competitive projects but that's true at the high end of pricing but at the entry level of pricing pricing is actually set by you know what i would call formation costs if you can't buy land and put up a building physically, unless you get a certain price plus a minimum of 15%, which is the bank's minimum required margin for profit, which very few people understand is a mandated profit for risk and underwriting, then you're not going to build. So ultimately, the supply side, uh, cost side, pushes up costs and developers will basically you know, signal that they're willing to bring properties to the market for, say, $1,200 a square foot for new home product because that's what they need to build it. And they may not build it for a while, but eventually the market will have to step up to meet, you know, building up pent up demand and start to pay that. So those, those input costs definitely drive the cost of housing. Once you've got to a price where you've covered your basis, then you're into the competition side of the market. It's like, is there less product in the market? Can I get even a bit more? 
or is there lots of product in the market so we'll all have to sell at that price, right? That's that's when competition between projects kicks in. Right. Thinking about competition, uh, we've had a lot of people on over the last year and, and some people kind of gleefully point out um, – you know, where's all the talk about the foreign buyers now type yeah. thing? You know, there's no boogeyman to point to. Yeah. You know, in just in just thinking about that and kind of the competitive nature of the Vancouver real estate market and foreign buyers or not, it's still hyper competitive. You know, it's it's a challenging place to buy no matter what moment we're in. But, you know, thinking about this last run we've went on and driven by local demand, do you think that kind of revises or should revise kind of the narrative of 2015, 2016, 2017, in which there was so much emphasis put on money from elsewhere and foreign buyers? Oh, I mean, in my view, it already has. I mean, it amazes me to this day that back in 20, you know, 15, 16, 17, you know, the experts and the, and the taxation authorities and government authorities in, in, in our region decided to start with the least obvious sources of the problem for housing affordability and start there and work back to the most obvious. <laughs> Foreign buyers were never the problem, but that's where they decided to start. And speculators were never the problem, and that's where they decided to start. And, you know, that old saying, you know, when when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, the government has the ability to tax, and inevitably that's where they jump to. But you know, I think that just last week, a, a report came out Federal combined federal provincial report headed by Joy McPhail and NDP, former NDP member of the legislature, Brian McCauley from our industry side, others, Jill Atkey from social housing. 100% they have landed on where UDI and other groups advocating for housing affordability have been for the last three or four years while we've been working on these demand measures, taxation, supply, supply, supply. And the number one culprit behind the shortage of supply in Vancouver, in Surrey, in Richmond, in Coquitlam, in North Van, District of North Van, in every major city down the West Coast and most major cities around the world is zoning. And municipal governance, which is set up in a way to automatically be conservative with respect to growth because it's protecting the interests of people who already got theirs. It's a governance structure that protects the housed and, you know, now finally, you know, as an example, Minister David Eby, the housing minister, who can't say I'm politically aligned with, but I have a great deal of respect for his intellect and his insight, has totally embraced the fact that constipated municipal process based in fear of change and the political impacts of change is the number one reason why we don't have housing affordability. Everybody's finally figured that out. Mm-hmm. The question is, is anybody going to do anything about it? And what in your mind, because it's such a complicated process and so politically fraught, what is the easiest way to, to kind of get out of the, the bind now that there's some sort of across-the-board acceptance that we need more houses? You know, it all starts with the federal government and their immigration programs. The federal government, Canada, understands that we have an aging and shrinking population, if you overlay the aging onto it. That in order to maintain the kind of society that we've come to expect with, you know, medical care and the social safety net that Canada has, which is great, we need to grow our population. They're bringing people in like gangbusters, you know, and they all go to Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver. In Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, to varying degrees, got municipal governments who are sticking their heads in the sand, trying to hide from growth, trying to shake off growth and make it go somewhere else where it doesn't create a political headache. And in between, you've got the provincial government who's decided over the years to delegate town planning to municipal government. And until from the federal government to the provincial government on down, they establish mandatory growth targets for municipalities, this problem isn't going to go away. And that's now being talked about a lot. And it doesn't just have to be a, a stick approach, like a penalty. It can be carrot and stick. It can be, hey, Vancouver, if you have to set housing targets to take your share of population growth. If you meet them, great. If you exceed them, we'll give you more money for infrastructure. We'll give you more money to develop technology, to process permits, to deal with infrastructure upgrades. If you don't meet them, we're going to penalize you. As an example, right now, I and I'm dead serious about this, I think the provincial government should write a letter to the city of Vancouver saying, 
unless you get the Broadway corridor approved on time and with substantially more housing density along the corridor to justify our transit investment in your city, we are not going to send you any more money. We're about to go into the third transit extension through Vancouver, where Vancouver has dodged the density bullet and taken welcomely the open arms, this massive multi-billion dollar transit investment without providing the requisite growth in the community. So, you know, this is the kind of thing provincial government's got to start to, you know, tell municipalities, you can't get away with this anymore. We're going to invest. Some guy in Prince George is paying taxes, you know, provincial income tax to build a transit line in Broadway so that his kid can go to university in Vancouver and live and take the train to UBC. Then Vancouver has an obligation on behalf of the whole province to deal with that and to do that and provide that density. And thinking about just mandatory housing targets. So areas like along the Broadway corridor, that seems to, although there's challenges there, seems to make a lot of sense. Are you thinking community by community? So, you know, going into a community like Grandview Woodlands and saying, okay, you have to add X number more houses. You know, Shaughnessy, you have to add X number more houses. Well, let's let's remember that we have a corporation of the city of Vancouver. It's one city. Communities, what does that mean? It means that some parts of the city have a different physical built form than others. Some have a different traditions or history of open space and green space and wealth and lack of wealth and so on. It's the it, these communities, neighborhoods, if you will, are just names for the diversity across the city. But as a collective, we're one city. And so there's no checkpoint with sandbags and machine guns at the corner of 16th and Dunbar that, you know, you have to use to get into Dunbar. It's all Vancouver. So part of our problem we're having with growth is the fact that we've created all these informal communities in the city and their requisite kind of community groups who, if they learn quickly, they snarl and growl at the prospect of any growth. And then the growth has to go off into some other community, which creates unfair deployment of growth. Um, some communities that don't have the political power influence end up bearing and end up shouldering an unfair proportion of the growth. So what I think should be happening is we should look at the kind of relative densities of all communities across the city, all neighborhoods and say to them, Hey, if you're predominantly kind of a four story, five story neighborhood, you get to be a seven story neighborhood. Now, you know, Kitsilano say, if you're downtown and you're predominantly a 15 to sort of 40 story neighborhood, you get to be a 30 to 80 story neighborhood, sort of topographical densification of the whole city. So we still maintain the diversity of form and character, but everybody has to grow. Yeah, you don't get to opt out. Grandview Woodland, who, by the way, hasn't opted out, who took a good plan. The West End took a good plan, but nobody should get to opt out of growth. John, in thinking about one area specifically, the downtown east side in Vancouver, I know Matt and I were, have talked about it. Reliance has recently sold a building in the downtown east side. What, if anything, are we getting right there? And then also, what does this mean for the future of the Hastings Corridor, Chinatown, Strathcona, with the city's plans uh, moving forward? I, you know, I've been down in that area with our office, you know, right on the edge of the downtown east side for you know, 25 years. I was chair of the Gaston BA for years. You know, we brought that area back with heritage, you know, revitalization and a retail renaissance. And for a time, it was, you know, one of the best ranked neighborhoods. It was the best ranked neighborhood in the city and one of the best ranked neighborhoods in the world, actually, for its appeal. Um, the downtown east side right next door in Chinatown, we made some inroads. We started some gentle, you know, people call it gentrification. I call it normalization where we started to create some market housing, which is in a vast minority to the social housing area. We made inroads. We did buildings like the Burns Block, 210 Carroll, and others. And then with fentanyl crisis, with this kind of ultra-permissive attitude towards drugs, which I don't object to, but with the crime related to drugs, which I do object to, the street disorder, which I do object to, in that area, particularly the downtown east side, is, is suffering mightily more than it ever was. And in my view, 
nothing that we're doing in the downtown east side as a society is right. Not one thing. We've decided to create an area with a hyper concentration of social housing and related social services. We're now somehow proudly converting entry-level market housing back to social housing as though that's some sort of an accomplishment. It is an absolute disaster. The downtown east side plan that the city brought in a number of years ago to create a zoning regime where basically any new development had to be, I think, 60% social housing and the other 40% rental, which is basically a recipe for financial failure, meant that the land just sits waiting for government funding. It's a complete mess. And to me, it is the number one biggest point of shame, embarrassment for Vancouver on a global scale. And I don't mean just because it's unsightly and awful to go through. I mean, because the people who are there are not being helped. Their dysfunction and their problems are being just fed on a daily basis. Imagine the idea of, you know, an alcoholic trying to recover and you're trying to put them in a place where they're going to be able to get away from alcohol. Do you put them in a flea bag hotel above a bar so that every time they go in and out the door, they're presented with the opportunity to drink? So in the downtown east side, when we have people who are trying to shake, say, addictions, where do we put them? We put them in an SRO hotel or a converted market housing building like the Burns Block. And then we put a social service agency on the ground floor. And then we allow drug dealers to stand right outside the door and block the doorway. So that every time that person who's trying to get off drugs comes in and out the door, someone's offering them a fix. It's just completely 100% insane. And what's going on the downtown east side. And to me, it is the poverty industry, simply headquarters for the poverty industry. And the more dysfunction the more destitution, the more money flows into the downtown east side, the more the poverty industry thrives on, on, on supporting that dysfunction. Do you see it as becoming more concentrated over time or do you see it as becoming expansive? Because we know that COVID was a bit of a, almost a steroid injection into the, the problems or the fissures that exist within kind of the, the northeast quadrant of downtown. We saw things like, you know, Strathcona Park, um, obviously, Chinatown has has changed in terms in of Granville Street. And yeah, now Granville, Granville Street. Street. So, do you see well, this? Well, of course, as, it's expanding because what what happens is BC Housing busts their hearts. I mean, they're a housing agency. So, what do they do? They build housing. All the money's getting pumped to them to solve the street disorder situation. So, what do they do? They buy a hotel. They take everybody from a park somewhere and they shove them in there, and they think they've done their job. You know, they put four walls around the problem. I don't really blame them for trying to do that. That's sort of the only choice they're given. But all those people and all the problems they have and all the crime that needs to go on to support the drug use and the kind of pyramid scheme of drug addiction and always needing new users to come in to feed the machine, those people don't get better by just having some converted hotel to live in. They still have to go out onto the street. They still have to steal stuff. They still have to find new users to bring in so that they can deal drugs. So housing is just one little teeny part of the problem. And it's just housing, 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 but it doesn't make it go away. It actually just makes it worse. So until we take it seriously and really deal with all the pillars, all the four pillars and give people, you know, mandatory treatment and get them out of the cesspool where they're, they're having that dysfunction, it's not going to get any better. They're just going to create more downtown east sides wherever they go. As soon as you concentrate the housing and social service agencies in a neighborhood, you've got a problem. So it needs to be a completely different approach, you know, where you're, it's a rehab situation where you're out of that environment and given all the supports, you know, mental health supports, drug addiction supports, job training supports, until you have a chance of recovering and not just being supported in your dysfunction in those neighborhoods. Are we too far gone? I don't know. You know, that's, I mean, for as long as I can remember, the downtown east side has been a worsening situation. And I don't really see the powers that be coming to the fundamental conclusion that what they're doing is not working. In my view, they're still 
in the more is better kind of way of thinking about the downtown east side. Oh, downtown east side's a problem. Oh, we need more housing. Oh, downtown east side's a problem. Oh, we need more social service agencies. Oh, downtown east side's full. Okay, let's go to some other area of the city that's got sort of similar issues already and, and amplify there. So honestly, I don't know if we're going to be able to solve that one. You know, thinking, and this this is probably a fairly crass transition, or it probably sounds pretty crass, but just thinking about, you know, the steroid injection Adam talked about over COVID and the downtown east side and kind of the expansive nature of, of the issues over COVID, the fact that Reliance at least sold, and I, I'm making an assumption here, but at least sold one of the, the buildings they have down in the downtown east side. I mean, the context being... We've talked a lot about the Hastings Corridor, Chinatown, the new hospital, the Northeast Falls Creek plan, all these real positive things that are happening in that area. Are you guys kind of, and cutting and running is not the the right language, but has the last year, year and a half changed your idea of that area as a great investment for real estate investors? Um. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Gastown, no, I would say no. Although we stopped buying Gastown years ago because we have a lot and it was it was too expensive. We just couldn't make sense of it anymore because we'd done it for a lot less. But no, I would not invest in Chinatown. I never have. I would not invest in the downtown east side. I mean, we made a beachhead with uh, Pay 18 West Hastings. We made a beachhead. We don't expect, never expected, and investors in Gastown, Chinatown, Downtown East Side don't expect it to be some sort of squeaky clean, gentrified neighborhood where you don't have to mix with all sorts of different people. Never wanted that, never liked that. Mm -hmm. But it reached the point where our tenants couldn't even come and go from the front door. And the police were telling them, oh, too bad, you'll have to go out through the back door. And I remember being on a call with this former city manager, the chief of police, the chief of engineering the head of social services for, you know, social, you know, the head of social services for the city, basically for that kind of street conduct issues and stuff going on down there and describing all these problems to them. And they basically said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. That's just the way it is in the downtown east side. You're paying your taxes, but sorry, you don't get to have what everybody else has in terms of basic civility or basic street order and it's too bad your tenants have to go through the back door and so when you hear that kind of thing and you see that they've given up as an investor you know our building now became worth more empty than full because the only buyer for it was bc housing and I remember a senior person at the city saying to me oh you know that's great you know glad that you sold that building um you know that's the kind of progress we need and i said Really, like we're converting entry-level market housing for people who can climb onto the bottom rung of the housing ladder with a little micro-suite because they have a job around the corner in a restaurant or, you know, something like that. And now we're going to make it into more social housing. Is that progress in the downtown east side? Like I get, I kind of get, I don't support building something new for social housing, but converting market housing to social housing? in a neighborhood that already has 80%, 90% social housing. So yeah, short answer is I wouldn't invest in Chinatown or East side. Mm-hmm. Gastown is, is suffered to some degree. Well, fairly significantly during COVID, but it'll come back quite strongly. I think, you know, there's a lot of good things going on there. Microsoft's got their brand new building. They just finished that. They probably haven't even moved into. We've got all our property down there. We're not selling in Gastown. Right. And and just to kind of touch on that, so Hastings Corridor, maybe just a little bit further east, you know, when people think about that corridor, often it's compared to, to you know, Main Street quite some time ago, where it seems like there's a lot of kind of exciting shops and restaurants and, and cafes kind of moving all the way east up to, um, call it Clark or even further, further east up to Nanaimo. What are your thoughts on the Hastings Corridor? I love Hastings Corridor west, uh, east of Clark. Um, we have a big project coming there around Hastings and Victoria, Hastings and Semlin area. That's the Grandview Woodland, you know, kind of main village. That's an awesome neighborhood. Um, why? 
because it doesn't have the same ridiculous zoning as the downtown east side plan. Downtown east side plan, I think, starts at Clark, goes to probably Abbott. It's the area where you have to do, I think, 60% social, 40% rental, can't really do condo. That's why it's a mess on the development front. Plus, you've got the big social problem overlay that we just mentioned, the, the, the total lack of order of the governance and the rule of law in that kind of special zone, social justice zone, they call it. But Hastings, east of Clark Drive, is an awesome neighborhood, and it's going to be one of the biggest and most exciting growth areas, you know, as is Maine, you know, from Broadway south, just a fantastic part of the city. Right. And and I'm sorry to just keep going area by area here, but I, I just... We've been excited about St. Paul's Hospital and kind of the, uh, you know, the services and the development that will kind of envelope that part of town. Is that something that you see as an exciting area or is it more one that yeah. causes pause? Yeah. No, we're not in there. Just as a, a cir- circumstantially, you know, with that kind of investment coming in that area, I think that's very good. A lot of people are making plays around terminal and main area and kind of down in those sort of industrial sites and behind by the train station and so on. I think it's good. And obviously Falls Creek Flats right next door is, is really good. We've done a couple of deals in there, but so yeah, no, I think that's good. But at the North end of that, it will buffet and, and be buffeted by the kind of downtown East side phenomena that comes up main street, you know, up to kind of prior is problematic area. And it'll, it'll be, you know, it won't be a quick situation there in terms of, of it being good. But, you know, I'm pretty positive about the area. Obviously, that's great to have that kind of investment. You know, we're very focused right now in, in the real downtown proper. It's funny, you know, we were always the kind of guys who were kind of on the eastern border, Gastown and that. And then it became very popular and everybody started chasing stuff into Chinatown, into East Gastown. We started heading west when that happened and we started drilling back into the core of the downtown. You know, the Hastings Corridor you know, from Canby West and Richard Street and, you know, the Hornby Corridor where we have Broad Place and we just acquired another property at Hornby and Robson, you know, kind of right at Centre Ice. You know, we've got our office buildings at, big office building coming at Pender, Seymour. We've got another big office building over in the West downtown at uh, Pender and Butte. So we're, we're really digging into the downtown centre core right now, finding opportunities. And John, that shift happened prior to COVID. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted that shift? Was it values or or valuations? Well, I you, know, you know, I, th- I think I think in fairness, it was more like we were starting to scale and also work partners. So the types of densities and buildings that we found it efficient for us to work on were growing. Right? I mean, you've heard this before. I mean, you have to do just as much work on a. $10 million deals, $100 million deal, really, you know, the same amount of diligence and effort and focus on outcomes. So as we scaled and found we were willing to do bigger deals, we naturally gravitated towards that area that effectively through zoning provided for bigger buildings. You know, so if we're building like our developments in Gastown, you know, our, we're sort of in the, the big ones. We're sort of in the 75 to 80 100,000 square foot range, warehouse conversions or or new builds at the big end. But, you know, now our projects are typically now, um, you know, 350 to 450,000 square feet. Broad place combined is, you know, almost a million square feet. So it really is probably more about scale and where you can build at scale mm-hmm. is, is much more in the in the center of the downtown. You know, just thinking about that and downtown's kind of taken a a bit of a, it's had a rough year, year and a half, uh, of course. All downtowns, yeah. All downtowns in the world, I think. Right, right. Yeah, definitely not uh, Vancouver specific. But has COVID, you know, changed your reliance's strategy in any way? And I'm thinking kind of what you're buying, what you're building, or do you think that kind of knee-jerk, or do you think that is kind of knee-jerk reaction that is is it overstated in the last year, year and a half? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. I mean, we're doubling down on the downtown. We've got partners who, on a global scale, who know how downtowns are going to come back, have already come back in the U.S. And so, you know, if you just look at our buying pattern, we, you know, we continue to grow a major assembly on Richard Street. We've just bought the property on Hornby and 
Robson. We've got Two Broad Place, which is a downtown residential tower. There has many downtown residential tower launches since 2017. We're just launching right now. Got our two big office buildings coming, 601 West Pender and 1166 West Pender. So yeah, we're really into the downtown and are not saying that downtown is doesn't have a great future. We totally believe it's got a fantastic future. We think that same kind of running into the woods and pulling the covers over your head and turning the lights off that kind of metaphorically happened with COVID is going to reverse hard and everybody's going to come down and come outside and want to get together again. And it wasn't like all of humanity made a mistake in the past and developed downtown course right. <laughs> um, by accident, right? There's a, there's, there's a reason they're there, right? And it, it doesn't go away just because everybody gets freaked out for a year from a pandemic. That said, though, COVID did show us a few interesting phenomenons about suburban and exurban development and opened up some avenues of inquiry for us. And actually right now on South Vancouver Island, we're looking at a major, major master plan community in a suburban environment that, you know, suburban waterfront environment. That would be the first time for us that we've ever gone down that avenue. And we do so cautiously with a partner, but it is something that we kind of noticed and thought, you know, why not? consider diversifying a little bit and having a bit of that other type of property that that was so popular and for so many good reasons during COVID and also the kind of the outing of the true ability to work from home, not not as a replacement for office, but I think as another channel of work means that suburban exurban property has a better commercial future than it sort of did before. Like you can actually make the argument that certain people in certain professions can effectively and will probably effectively always be able to work more remotely than what they did in the past. And that means that the commuting negative involved with suburban exurban property has been diminished. Mm-hmm. And and that's a long-term, so that changes things long-term. To a degree, yeah, to a degree. Uh, you know, it's so always with these kind of, these shifts, like people say, well, what does work from home going to mean for companies going forward i think it just means that not only you have to be at work but if you're at home your boss thinks you should be able to go to a meeting as well like it's actually just gonna mean everybody has to work harder <laughs> but right. but for a certain percentage of the population i think like suburban exurban properties before were really only for people who like higher end stuff were really for only people who effectively kind of almost were retired mm-hmm. but i think you're now going to see more working working age people, mid-career people, finding ways to have a commercial, commercially viable existence in a suburban, exurban environment where their commuting is maybe instead of five days a week, it's maybe two days a week. So I think that that shift is going to be somewhat permanent for some of the population. And to us, that means suburban and exurban property is going to be more appealing and there's going to be more people wanting it. So in that same vein then, John, what areas outside of downtown in the lower mainland are you excited about? Most of our growth in that space is actually on South Vancouver Island. You know, I love Burnaby selectively if you can if you can um, compete with all the Burnaby, you know, pros right. on the development front. Because, you know, that, that happens in Vancouver too. Like certain people kind of set up shop in certain parts of the city. I would say we're downtown Vancouver experts. You know, I don't know what I don't know about Burnaby, you know, when I'm up against people like Ward McAllister or, you know, Polygon or, but still like it for its potential. Not that big a fan of the West Side because it's just sort of overpriced and under dense. We've done a tower in Surrey early on, like like early in the run up of, of Central City, like right at City Hall there. That was quite an interesting outcome. So we're keeping an eye on those, what I call kind of denser suburban nodes. But our explorations into suburban property probably be limited to Vancouver Island at this point, which there's a different geographical economic equation there where the choice between living downtown, say in Victoria and living in Langford or something like that, it's a much shorter financial journey to get to a single family house in Langford from a luxury or semi-luxury condo in downtown Victoria. So there's more people are making that choice to have that suburban experience still there in Vancouver, where really to live in a suburban context in Vancouver, you really are stuck with a much bigger price delta to live right in the city and a bigger commute too. So it just kind of works better in 
Vancouver Island South where more people can afford to go to the suburbs than in Vancouver or the close suburbs, I would call it. What's your take? We've had a lot of people on talking about the interior. Um, do you have any thoughts on like the expansion, the growth that's happening currently in Kelowna and kind of the surrounding area? Again, like I sort of don't have a clue of how to do anything there. And, and certainly we watch it and we know it's a big growth note. We've always been, up until 10 years ago, we were 100% Vancouver. And not, and I mean like downtown or like in like Vancouver proper within the Vancouver boundaries. Then we decided to go to Victoria because we like the heritage assets and the downtown, compact downtown. And we've been able to expand there fairly significantly. We kind of get what's going on there. I mean, obviously, the next the next growth market outside of Vancouver and down one step down is the interior in the Okanagan, which is which is great. You know, I could see us maybe going there at some point in the future, but right now we're focused more on Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island's almost South Vancouver Island's almost become a self sustaining region now, where like it's not like it sort of feeds on itself now, like a star, like it's just ignited and it's just kind of running on. It's everybody just works for somebody else. And like, it doesn't really, you don't have to trace every job now back to a primary industry, right? like tourism or government or resources. It's just kind of like business to business economy is sort of, is sort of functioning now. One of the things that worries me a little bit about the Okanagan is it is still pretty heavily buffeted by what's going on in Alberta. And it's sort of an Alberta, second home and resort community and more gradually is becoming a bedroom community for the lower mainland but again the same rationale i was saying for victoria and south and ground of that more people being able to find ways to kind of work remotely at least some of the time i think that will bode well for the okanagan it's just we just don't have the bandwidth to be thinking about that market right now you know, on something kind of an entirely unrelated note, John, I just am thinking about kind of your reliance's kind of competitive advantage and, and where you focus in mature urban environments. It strikes me like you're you're very outspoken, obviously, about planning and politics, but it does seem like you operate in kind of the hardest areas to actually build things in a lot of cases. And what drew you to to Victoria is, you know, the heritage component, the the dense, walkable urban environment, but one that is just really hard to build in. Is that kind of, are you guys suckers for punishment or is it that <laughs> that you, uh, the strategic kind of advantage that, you know, other people are looking for tracks of land that they can just build a, you know, a large project on and not worry about it? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. You know, my dad was a scientist and, um, he used to walk around in his lab with a white lab coat on and his lab assistants once put a little piece of paper on the back of his lab coat that he didn't see that said, think there must be a harder way. Maybe I'm a little bit like that, you know, <laughs> maybe our company's a bit like that. But I think the answer to that is that we do see that as our competitive advantage. We're not a housing manufacturer. We're probably not the fastest at getting a building permit and putting up a building and we don't do our own construction and, we're not a manufacturer. We see ourselves more as sort of alchemists, like turning lead into gold or carbon into diamonds kind of thing. And, and so digging for land transition or physical asset transition or neighborhood transition is just more where we find our skills are. And it's super hard. You're right. And at times it's just like you just want to just like give up. But at the same time, when you're successful with it, the returns are outsized. You're working in a competitive black box market where it's super hard for your competitors to measure how long things are going to take and how things are going to turn out. And because we're private and small and lean and we don't have a kind of a investment syndicates or fund channeling of our equity, we can stay opportunistic and stay loose and stay fluid. And I think that's just, yeah, that's what gives us that advantage. It's like we're willing to do the heavy lifting in that infill context. Infill means it's going to be harder. You've got buildings all around you. You've got a lot of zoning context or policy context. You've got opposition groups. But if you can do it, you get a big return. You get a big benefit. And the idea of like turning lead into gold, it's such a, you know, kind of great 
visual for the type of work you guys do. Can you just talk a little bit about, and I'm thinking of for like mom and pop investors walking around the city, wondering about like, what are you looking for? How do you spot those opportunities? Can you just talk a little bit about that process? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we used to have the saying in our company and we still do, I guess it's kind of part of our DNA now was, you know, with a broker would pitch a property to us and we'd say, I'm sorry, it's the wrong end of the block, right? Which, which kind of means that your decision-making in infill development is hyper-granular. Like it's like, it's not just, is it downtown or is it in a nice part of the downtown or is it an emerging growth part of the downtown? It's like, what side of the street is it on? Does it get sun? Is it going to shadow a park? Is it a corner? Is it L-shaped or is it rectangular? A lot of this stuff comes from decades and decades and decades of just doing stuff, both at the zoning level, but at the physical level too, like building buildings and understanding where you can put windows and understanding adjacencies to existing structures. And, you know, like it's kind of, yeah, that's a really, like there's really no fast track course for that one like we have a very design focused practice in our company you know we have most of our project managers or architects or engineers i'm more on the finance side although i love design i'm more on the policy and zoning opportunity side but i guess collaboratively we have that discipline which is really hard to explain of all these different experiences over many many years of trying to identify trying to find the opportunities, you know, trying to find the diamonds in the rough kind of thing. It's pretty hard to tell somebody how to do that. I'd, I'd be afraid I would tell them something and they'd make a mistake. It's just sort of experience, really. John, maybe as a final question here, we're, we seem to be kind of at an interesting moment in the market where, you know, the market's still very busy. However, it's not quite at the fever pitch it was a few months back. What are your thoughts on the market kind of for the balance of 2021 and then maybe kind of moving forward, you know, one to three years out? I guess COVID kind of created a, you know, it's funny, you know, you normally in economic downturns, you talk about a shortage of money supply. But COVID actually, there was a surplus of money supply where money that was going down many different rivulets of the economy and, and being diluted and spent on many, many different things. Suddenly, the you know half those little rivulets of spending were dammed up and the money was still building up above the dam kind of thing, right? And so then the money started to go into what you could do during COVID. You could buy a boat, you could buy a house, you could renovate your deck, you could do stuff that was kind of hearth and home focused. And I think that was a big driver of housing demand during COVID as well as the transition, a little bit of a flight from the urban environment, driving urban suburban property. And then there was this, the government was, as they usually do during the crisis, were printing money and interest rates got super low and there was a big liquidity pool coming from, you know, effectively quantitative easing. That created this sort of superset of circumstance for spending on large capital items like housing. Um, and everybody had to have a house. That was the one thing you knew during COVID. The hierarchy of real estate was your crib came first, right? Mm-hmm. So I expect that dissipates a bit now as as the money starts to, um, people start traveling and spending money on things that they couldn't spend money on before. And maybe interest rates start to rise a little bit. So I would say that I would hope for kind of a steady market, you know, and a healthy market now and tempering that demand a little bit, but not a lot, but the positive overlay that's going to be coming back onto that and driving commerce in Vancouver is going to be the return of the office market, which was on fire before, and I believe will come back quite forcefully. So we're expecting a pretty good market for the next two, three years, but, you know, obviously we're coming off a time of extreme volatility and unintended consequences of things that were done during COVID have yet to land, particularly the printing of money. Are we going to get an inflationary bite? Inflation's good for real estate if it's not over leveraged. But a lot of home ownership is is heavily leveraged, so we'll just have to see how that plays out. But we're just, as I said, we've launched two condo projects in the last two weeks. You know, one of them we were forty percent sold after three days. Um, it's the east side of Vancouver, just east of Broadway, on just east of Maine on Broadway, called the St. George. Right. 
And uh, we're just in previews for two Burrard Place, which is a downtown luxury tower, you know, the next tower to one Burrard Place. And it's looking like it's going to be super strong. We've heard a lot of chatter around uh, that project specifically and just how much demand there seems to be. So, Which is interesting, right? Because the, the, the last time at one Burrard Place, I remember that launch was like bonanza, right? It was insane. Right. But it feels like such a different moment. So it's interesting that there's so much demand because it just feels like a, yeah, I guess, was that 2017 that that launched? <clears throat> yeah, it was, uh, it was actually late 20, 2015, uh, October 2015. Oh, okay. God, even yeah. longer ago. Sorry, October 2015 through March 2016, yeah. Right, right. right. <clears throat> you know, obviously, we feel that there's some pent-up demand in the downtown. Um, not crazy, but pretty strong, pretty healthy, and kind of early bird gets the worm as downtown starts to run again. And I, you know, I think we'll be coming in at a, a number that is below, you know, the 2017 high watermark and a, and a number that gives people a level of affordability that hasn't been downtown for some time and some potential for growth as well. Great. Perfect. So I think the early adopters, I think the people who, as we've talked about on this call, who see that the downtown's going to come back and, you know, buy on rumor, not on news, they're going to be our buyers. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's fantastic. Well, thanks so much, John. We we do have this segment called the Five Wire Five Quick Questions about. I'll probably say the same thing as last time. Yeah, although we just changed one, and I think it really works in your favor because, as I recall, you you're a musician, not a former musician, but a, a musician. Am I, do I have that right? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Well, first question, and I know it's probably well, maybe not uh, now that we're opening up, but. Favorite bar or restaurant? Shambar. Favorite band or song? Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's tough. That's even tougher for a musician. Yeah, it doesn't okay. make it easier. Or, or just list your top 25. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd have to say my favorite band is, and what a fossil I am, is Pink Floyd to this day. Oh, nice. Interesting. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What is one book that you'd recommend anyone listening? Hmm. Geez. I, I, one of my favorite books I ever read, I can't, I don't have the name exactly right. Was a, was a biography of, of Mao, which I think was just an amazing story about how one guy, one personality was able to dominate such a massive nation. Right. Yeah. Real study in certain, certain types of, leadership style which is both fascinating but super scary no kidding actually we just talked to uh perennial guest tom davidoff who i think you're familiar with the other day and his book recommendation was a, a new biography of hitler so um right not, yeah. not quite as large as uh, a landmass but um, well you know it, it's part it's, it's more germane i think because of, of what we saw with trump where you know basically Someone who's basically just the bad dude is able to kind of mesmerize a population or a significant segment of the population. And Mao was like that, and clearly Hitler was like that as well. Right, right. One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Hmm. You know, I'm, I've been very fortunate and you know, in, in my career and was able to achieve a lot without pushing my formal education as far as a lot of people in my peer group, but I would have gone further down that road, you know, even gotten a, a deeper and more, more deeper formal education uh, in business than I did. I had to learn a lot on the job. I love that because often you hear uh, people's very successful in real estate tell you to drop out in high school. So um, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. a nice contrast. Yeah. Last question for you, John, and we really appreciate your time. Something you have bought in the last year, year and a half, I guess the COVID purchase for a thousand fifteen hundred bucks that has uh, had a positive impact on your life. Oh, definitely, that would be one of the several guitars I bought during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> nice, maybe one of the cheaper ones. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, John, how can people find out more about what you're up to, and of course, Reliance and uh, the projects that you guys have underway? Well, uh, reliancepropertiesca is our our webpage. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter at John Stovell. Most of the stuff I'm talking about in the kind of policy and advocacy space, I I share on Twitter. We definitely follow you. That's a, you're 
that's highly recommended for listeners. That's for sure. Well, well, thanks so much again for your time, John. I think we ran a little longer than we we said we would. So really appreciate your time, and uh, that was a really insightful, great conversation. Okay, much appreciated. Thank you for taking your time to talk to me. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with John Stovell, CEO and president of Reliance Properties. Really enjoyed that conversation with John. And, you know, we should say, and shout out to John, of course, because um, we we said to him we'd take about 30 to 40 minutes of his time. We took a full hour and uh, I didn't really want that conversation I, to end. I, we had I a lot of uh, we had a lot of stuff to cover and we covered the gamut. Yeah. No, there was a lot of interesting takeaways from that conversation. Man, just a just a really bright guy. First guy, I think, ever on the program who has said they wished they had more formal education. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because the uh, I don't think this is like a Gary V thing, but definitely I feel like it's a um, no, who's the ten times guy? Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone. I feel like Grant yeah, Cardone yeah. would tell you to you know oh, burn, burn your books. Every yeah, that's so the zeitgeist right now. Eh? You don't need formal education. I love that. I love that. Uh, John well, is is. He zigs when everybody else zigs. That's right. For sure. Yeah, but it's clear. Really thoughtful guy. Really, really bright guy. And yeah, pleasure to have him on the program. What else do we have before we cut for the day? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related. We have things like the Live Wire. This is where we're sending out VIP access to industrial projects, residential pre-sales in Victoria and Vancouver. We got the deal of the month. We have past episodes, stats, stats like you wouldn't believe. Right. Uh, there's no reason you shouldn't be on this list. That's over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. No obligation, no cost. We also have private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. This is the best resource out there for searching for real estate in Vancouver. Trust us, we've tried them all. And uh, definitely go over to the site and sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And last but not least, from zero to Kokomo, seriously, if you if you got one door, if you got three, if you got five, if you just got a great story about investing in real estate, we'd love to hear from you. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or alternatively, if you want to talk about that or anything else, Give me a shout, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Awesome. Well, have a good week, guys. Enjoy the sun. Stay uh, stay hydrated. And uh, we'll see you back next week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? 
Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 